0: You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast, and today I am joined by a very special guest, Mr. Francois Xavier Hautier, who is the president of Americas for a very interesting Swiss watch brand called Ulysses Nardin, which is based in a small town called Le Loc. Uh, Francois, we're gonna, Francois Xavier, we're gonna call you FX. Uh, that's what you like to be called. So, FX, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Ariel,
0: and thank you for
1: uh, you did a good job with Francois Xavier. I'm impressed.
0: Oh, oh yes, well. <laughs> You know, the funny thing is I have been traveling to the French speaking world for, you know, well over a decade now and I'm actually embarrassed that I don't speak French yet. So I can pronounce the words I understand a lot, but I'm not I've never been that good with languages and I wish I could somehow change my brain because being better with languages probably would be the single best thing for the watch my watch industry career. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I
1: think even if the industry is Swiss, uh, it's true that most of the guys you must be speaking with are, have a very strong French accent.
0: <laughs> well, we know you, you've lived in multiple parts of the world. How have you handled the fact that you've had to be not only a master of, of marketing and branding and all kinds of things like that, but, but also a master of languages? And forget, and correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the French invent diplomacy?
1: Uh, I think so. I don't know if we invented diplomacy. I think every time you have three guys in the same room, someone has to be a diplomat. But, um, yeah, it's true that the French language was the language of diplomacy, um, at least in the Second World War, so for some time, correct?
0: Yeah, I know. Historically, it was just very interesting. If you look at all the, the issues in, in Europe, so many combating nations and cultures and things like that, um, unlike other parts of the world that are much more homogenized, diplomacy was a, was a sort of standard way of life, and and, and that's actually a big comparison that I've seen when it comes to America versus Europe. Is today in America, it's America and America and America in this large land mass. And in Europe, when you grow up, it's, you know, we are one country among many. There's different cultures, different languages. There's this sort of notion that no one is quite better than anyone. We have shared values. When it, whereas in America, everyone's raised from day one, America's the best. America's the land of the free what was that like for you, um, you know, as a European, eventually moving to the United States, seeing that? Was it a culture clash for you or did you sort of take it in stride? I
1: don't think it was a culture clash. I mean, I've been traveling a lot to the U.S., uh, like when I was a younger guy, or was a professional. My dad lives in the U.S.A. Uh, my sister is working in Normandy in France for um, the American Um, battle commissions, so she works at the Normandy Cemetery on Omaha Beach. So my family is very, uh, I would say, uh, American friendly. I'm right now, in fact, reading a book about Lafayette. And uh, I miss the time when Lafayette and Benjamin Franklin would be in Paris chatting about uh, freedom in America in French. I would have been amazing time yeah a lot of
0: people don't know i read the uh i think it was the walter isaacson biography of uh benjamin franklin and he was he was quite the the francophile he spent a lot of time in paris and he sort of went back and forth as to you know what what culture he liked the most american culture or or french culture he was uh he was quite the fan he even had i think a, a lover in paris
1: I would say he had a, a strong taste for French women, so I'm not sure it was
0: she was only using you. one woman, you know. <laughs> oh, okay, that that, made, that that makes sense for sure. Now, <laughs> so let's go back to you, listen Ardant. You are you're a French person living in America, working for a, a Swiss watch brand, and you you're you're a few years into it now. But you, it, correct me if I'm wrong. Before this company, you had not worked in the watch industry before. Is that correct? Um,
1: yes and no. Just before. Um, I started uh, in Ulysse-Nardin and moved to, to the USA. I was living in Paris, uh, working for Christian Dior Parfum, so the perfume and cosmetic division. Before that, I was in Moscow, in Russia, um, leading the perfume and cosmetic uh, Christian Dior uh, business. And in fact, before that, I was for Tag Heuer. Um, so Patrick, Poglio, right. The CEO uh, of ulysse uh used to be a uh, uh, global sales for Tag and he recruited me. Uh, with Jean-Christophe Baden, uh, now at uh, Bulgari, they recruited me
0: in Russia to open the subsidiary in uh, Moscow. Forte okay. Greece. So what does the world of fragrance and perfume and watches have in common? I'm sure there are some very real things that people would not immediately think about.
1: Uh, you know, at the end, it's, uh, I believe, it's about the story. Uh, of course, uh, we can speak hours about uh, the silicone technology, the freak. The same way you can speak hours about what is the flower we use uh, to for the shadow perfume collection. But at the end, it's uh, the experience, the story, your connection with uh, the products, your connection with the universe of the products or the brand. So I think this is what they have in common. And in my work, in the way I speak about Julissa we speak about Christian Dior, I will tell you the story. The story of a couturier who is also a perfumer, or I will st- tell you the story of uh, of uh, Mrs. List, uh, Mr. Nader uh, and Marine uh, Kilometers. It's all about the story. That's what I believe.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because I don't think that people can sort of, you know, stress that enough when it comes to the story. The idea is essentially this, and we'll use a perfume as an example. There's a perfume in a bottle that smells a certain way, and if you just pick it up and look at it and smell it you might be like oh that's nice but once you learn what is the shape of the bottle mean um, you know what is the history of the scent what is the history of the ingredients how long has this been has this been a scent around you know how has the scent been used in history and as you essentially learn the history and the story and the technicality around it you have a new level of appreciation and literally minutes later your perception of value in this item can skyrocket. Whereas it may have been worth nothing to you after you learn these details, all of a sudden it's worth a lot when the item itself has not changed. What do you think that says about human psychology?
1: What I think, Ariel, is that, uh, I mean, I love speaking with you because you always have the white right, uh, right world. Um, what I feel is that you are totally right with uh, understanding the universe behind. I think as people, we, are, we see the object to watch is a perfume. But uh, we have the intellect to ask for more, to explore, to learn, to touch. You know, we have this ability. And uh, if you speak about perfume, uh, the, at first glance, for most of the people, a perfume is mass market. You go to Sephora, you get a discount card, and you have like hundreds of brands. What I remember for perfumes is flying my customers or journalists to the south of France, collecting at 5 a.m. in the morning uh, fresh roses uh, and going then to extract from the roses um, uh, the perfume. The perfume coming from flowers that we use in J'adore, for example. And suddenly the experience is extraordinary. For what the same, if you enter into a watch store today, you will have like 30, 35 brands maybe. But if you fly to Switzerland, to the mountains, you go to the lock and then you visit uh, or research, uh, research and development, research uh, and development team. If you go to the manufacturer, if you see the watchmaker, if you see some people working on the screws, just making screws uh, in the manufacturer, and then suddenly your appreciation is very different.
0: I'll, I'll give you an example that comes to mind, and then we'll talk a little bit more about Lysnardan. But several years ago, I was in um, I was in Dresden, Germany. And I visited a small uh, independent watchmaker, uh, Marco Lang. You you might have heard of him. And he's the type of person where their watches are are not mainstream. Um, You know, they make a very small number per year. And I did an article about how much money it costs them to make one screw. And we calculated that given what they pay people and the number of hours it took, it would cost about 120 euros or something like that to, to make one screw. And I tried to explain, you know, this this watch has, you know, a bunch of screws and a bunch of other parts. But look at the time and effort that goes into just one screw. And all of a sudden, when you appreciate the number of human hours and skill that goes into these products, there's sort of a wow factor, right? Because we're not used to items that small requiring that much time and there's something about the fact that a bunch of skilled human beings like slaved over something that that adds value to us so what does that say about human human psychology and you're right Ariel, and
1: it's incredible as, i mean you know the industry and we always have the question do you don't you think that Swiss watches are too expensive or people think the price is crazy uh, and then you say okay you have your story about screws i have my story about enamel diode. So when I just started in East China, my very first week, uh, Jan 2018, I visited, uh, our workshop where we do this enamel dial, where we do the champ and when we work on um, micro painting. I was amazed the time, the skill, uh, time spent to try because, you know, there is like 50% less maybe, um, to try to do a dial in enamel. And after the quality control, rejecting like half of them and doing it again is completely incredible. So I think that the value um, that we can create is working so hard to have a superlative, to use your word, a superlative uh, experience uh, for for our owner is worth like uh, the price we uh, we charge for some perfumes or for, for watches.
0: So what did you do to learn some of those stories that listening to our Because I want to say for people that don't know, is that this is a brand which is somewhat distinctive in the fact that it has, I don't want to say entry level because they're not entry level and luxury, but they're, you know, several thousand dollars is where the, the brand's products start, but they go up to several hundred thousand dollars and, and there's a lot in between, of course. How did you get involved in learning some of the the more nuanced stories about the more exotic pieces? You mentioned enamel dials. There's vividly complicated complications and and all kinds of things between technical stuff and artistic stuff. Did the brand, you know, did they give you a training course or were they just like, hey, FX, come in this room and watch this artisan? What was that like?
1: Oh, it's exactly the second (laughs) second thing. I mean, it's interesting because we started, despite the fact that we celebrate 175 years, uh, this year, uh, the brand was really a B2B brand. We were um, producing timepieces for engineers, doctors, uh, for the navies. Uh, so we didn't really create some archives, you know. Uh, we don't have, like, advertising of the 19th century. We have, but not enough to really uh, um, learn of the, by the books. So what I did is that I simply, like everyone else, I've been on the internet, but mostly I've been to the manufacturer, um, as a manufacturer, we have uh, a colleague called Max. He knows like a lot about the company and has spent time simply, uh, uh as a manufacturer with the colleagues, just listening. And you see these old, amazing marine chromators of the 19th century, um, uh, restored by, uh, the watchmakers. You can spend some time with the, uh, department where they are working as a minute repeaters, for example. Um, uh, which is insane. And we have a small museum that we keep really for, for the, for the colleagues or for some journalists sometimes visiting. We have a small museum where you can see Ulysse Nardin from uh, 1846, uh, to, uh, to the last, uh, last collections. This is the way you learn. And the last thing I've been doing really was searching on, a history of marine chronometers. And, um, it's fascinating. You find that Ulysse Nardin in 1905, uh, started to supply the U.S. Navy. At the same time, you had uh, the Russian Navy at war with the Japanese Navy. And you uh, learn that both of the Russian and Japanese Navy were using marine kilometers made by this in a small village in the lot. This
0: is mind-blowing for me. Uh, and this is how I've been learning about the brand. A lot of people forget that prior to things like GPS and radar technology, Um, Time-keeping instruments were not just to know what time it is, but they were used for navigational purposes and for military uh, needs. Every ship had these very sophisticated high-accuracy clocks called marine chronometers. And historically speaking, Ulysses Nardon was one of the premier companies that made them. But something very interesting happened to Ulysses Nardone in, I believe, the 1980s. And so the the brand has this wonderful history making marine chronometers and other things. But in the middle of the 20th century, like many uh, prestigious names in Swiss watchmaking, uh, there was a a time of depression because there was the the quartz movement which came in. And it really changed um, a lot of things. It was called the quartz crisis. For the Swiss watch industry. So an individual named Rolf Schneider picked up the brand in the 1980s. And, and Rolf was one of these very special people in, in this watch industry in the 80s that wanted to reinvent it and, and make something new. And Rolf did a lot of research and development to make, I don't know how you would describe them, just wild, highly ambitious, special projects that that put the it's brand big projects, I would say. <laughs> what, what what what'd you say? Freak projects. A freak projects. Yes, and there's a, a collection named the Freak. Now, my, here's my question: You you entered the brand after Mr. Schneider passed away. I was fortunate enough to to meet him a few times. But how do people in the brand speak about him? I know there's still a reverence there. How do people talk about Mr. Schneider?
1: Very highly. Uh, you know, it is not as you said, uh, kind of a B two B brand, very technical, known from from engineers, doctors, or people involved in navigation. And Schneider in '83 took over the company while the industry was depressed. And uh, he brought uh, some amazing innovation, uh, disruption, creativity. So the respect we have for him is uh, huge because the RISNARDEN you see today is a mix of the Swiss tradition, uh the best Swiss tradition of watchmaking, reliability, quality, uh mixed with uh pure research, pure craziness, uh in astronomical watches, in complications, uh the freak, the use of silicon, and really amazing, amazing uh, development. So today Listardin, why we celebrate our anniversary, if you want, it's a mix of both, the pure Swiss tradition of watchmaking mixed with the best disruption, which makes the brand um, one foot in the past and one foot in the future, if you
0: want. And this it's, really, it's really playful. It's really a, a playful brand. I'll tell you an interesting experience I had. You might not know this. Um, this was back in, I think, 2012. I was in Moscow, where you used to live, and I was interviewing the manager of the Ulysses Nardin store that was right next to the Kremlin. <laughs> so I went in there, and this individual—I have I, since forgotten his name. I apologize. He was a nice guy. He invited in two Ulysses Ardan collectors, and we sat in this back room um, for two hours talking about the Ulysses watches, their collection, while they were, you know, smoking and basically, you know, uh, it, it was—it was. I felt okay. like I was 30 years previous in Russia. But these two guys, very smart, love the brand. And you know it's funny because Moscow, at least in, over the last several years, uh, has been a very important place for the brand. Have, did you um, did you notice the branding for Ulysse on when you when you lived in Moscow? Of course. I mean, when you live in Moscow, uh, Ulysse
1: Narna is the ultimate watch brand for collectors. Uh, it's very strong there. Uh, same reason. I mean, I think the Russians, are, as you said, are very smart, very educated in a engineering, micro-technology. I mean, they also sent um, uh, spaceships, you know. Uh, so, they are pretty smart and they really respect their history. And the fact that it's not has been uh, like for the U.S. Navy, the supplier of their Navy, uh, is something they really they really
0: love, you know, they cherish. So, the brand is strong. So, let's talk more about the U.S. now. I just think it was interesting to talk about some of your experiences with the brand and some of my experiences. And people that you know listen to the show and don't per se know about Alyssa Don or maybe have just heard the name, I think it's sort of important for them to understand that even a professional like me and someone like yourself, it takes years to really learn all these stories. You keep uncovering things, and the deeper you go, the more rich it becomes. And you recognize that it isn't just that this company's been around for a long time, but there's been all these personalities like you and me in the brand across its history that have added, for lack of a better term, flavor. And now that we look at it, and it's just like, there's so much to work with, and now you in the U.S. are adding new flavor to it. Talk to us a little bit about some of the initiatives and relationships and partnerships you're trying to build, and let's talk about those one-on-one here in the U.S. Talk to me about that.
1: Yeah, I uh, yeah, thank you for asking this question. It's, um, uh, it's professional and a little bit personal as well, <laughs> in a way. Um, so when I started, and I think we discussed that, where uh, one of these guys really helped me understanding this market uh, when I started in the job three years ago so you know uh, know a lot and more than many people I guess so I remember you may remember I told you you know uh, as soon as I arrived I wanted to reconnect with, this Nana with uh, the US Navy I think it's an amazing story also wanted to uh, work uh, with uh, veterans so also kind of personal my family has been in the army for, for a while um, and uh also wanted to work in some projects with uh, uh, marine biology or shark, or science, something like that. And um, it's true that now we have uh, made partnerships with uh, these three, uh, the three, three, three projects, if you want. Um, we have launched a watch called the St. Pierre Fortis, and we have the watch right now. It's a beautiful uh, marine, uh, uh, marine watch. We have launched uh, this uh, collection uh, at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, uh with the secretary of the navy it was during the medal of honor convention and we presented the watch uh to a few guests uh and the watch was presented by um a friend of mine uh, royal navy uh teaching navigation at the academy so we really came back to the basic we really where we come from uh, the
0: other so project oh yeah excuse me no i just let's talk, let's talk about that for a second because there's so much to discuss about the US Navy now as you said, historically speaking, Ulysses and Ardon had been producing marine chronometers that the U.S. Navy purchased and used on the ships. But this is a story that was not talked about. It was sort of known but not talked about. So you, you come here, you become the president of the brand for, for America, and creating these initiatives where you sort of you know make these stories <clears throat> bigger because they're worth talking about is, is your job. When you go to the U.S. Navy and you're like, hey, we used to make you know, clocks for you. Can we do something? How does that conversation start? Uh, I mean, the story is long and
1: crazy. But To make it short, I, a friend of mine is uh, a former senator of Arkansas. Uh, he introduced me to the secretary of uh, the Navy, who you may know is, has an amazing job because he managed one million people. So literally, I've been introduced to the secretary of the Navy. Wow. Uh, and he asked me, oh, okay, I don't know the brand, you don't know this now, what can I do for you? And I told him I would love to connect with the Navy. And he introduced me to um, a lady in charge of organizing the Medal of Honor Convention at the Academy. And with the introduction of the Secretary of the Navy, needless to say that I was very well received. Uh, and um, we could not, in fact, at the beginning, sponsor the model of North convention because it's only U.S. companies a uh, allowed to sponsor this event. It's a, it's a interesting. Interesting specific event. It's organized by the Congress. It's uh, a Congressional Medal of Honor. But uh, I just explained, you know, we used to supply uh, the U.S. Navy. I had to show proof of it. I've, I, uh, we have documents proving that we were supplying the Navy. Uh, and they said, okay, let's make an exception. And we have been uh, named Stars and Stripe <laughs> a sponsor. And we've been, um, uh, in fact, helping families uh, of the uh, families of um, the uh, recipients uh, to repay for their expenses, uh, going to Annapolis and visiting uh, uh, these events. And that's how we we partnered. And it was an amazing launch pad for us. We uh, started back to the rules. We used to supply the US Navy uh, under Theodore uh, Roosevelt's government starting in 1905. And uh, we know that our marine crometers were on use on the boats. Um, till the Second World War, uh, on D-Day, on the French
0: beaches, and till the 50s, uh, we were, uh, in the U.S., uh, used by the Navy. So what kind of response did you get back in Switzerland? Because it sounds like you had to go through a bunch of people and jump through a bunch of hoops, and it was anything but a straightforward process. Um, was there gratitude? Was there respect back home at the brand? I mean, it seemed like what you did was, was hard.
1: Uh, they loved it. I mean, Patrick Pregnot was super
0: excited, you
1: know, we have uh, uh, the idea of um, having a, a manager in a market is to make sure that we are relevant on the market, you know, so yeah, I think they liked it. The product team was super excited by the idea of um, uh, making a watch, which is a replica, uh, a 44 millimeter replica of a 64 millimeter chronometer, and all the team has been excited. The watch has been a huge success. Uh, I think we have two left, that's all, that we keep kind of uh, uh, in the vault, you know.
0: Um, that's all. The watch has been an amazing success. So you, you took an, a clock, the design of a clock, and then you miniaturized it for use on the wrist. That sounds like a very satisfying thing for the, for the Navy folk because it's their history on the wrist, which is probably the best use of a watch. What, what was some of their reception?
1: The first customer for this watch is a naval officer who bought the watch. He asked me for the number 19, and he offered the watch to his son, uh, who was finishing his first year at the academy. So for us, the start was there. We had a a good-looking guy, white uniform in Annapolis, wearing the watch, offered by his dad, himself a naval officer. I love the story. And among our customers, we have a lot of naval officers. And I love the story. And this is what you said, we are not mainstream as a company. You need to dig to know Ulysse Nardin, but when, the more you dig, the better the stories.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. That's wonderful. And then you said um, that there's you know personal interests involved. How does you know personal interest connect to this this other military connection, which is this charity called One More Wave that I know you're super excited about? And I'll just explain it briefly for for everyone that doesn't know. That's this is a San Diego based charity that essentially helps injured uh, veterans um, get back to living through lack of a better term, surf therapy. Would you explain it any differently? No, it's
1: perfect, totally. Uh, you know, the veterans, when they come back from combat or when they leave the Army and the Navy, they are kind of lost. You know, they they, they lose the connection with the community. So what wife is doing is not only um, making, in their own workshop, tailor-made surfboards uh, for disabled veterans, and in addition, they provide them a community uh, to avoid especially uh, uh, suicide.
0: You know? and And you as a brand... You made, you know, there's a watch for them. You support them with visibility um, and, of course, some profit sharing and stuff like that when these watches are sold. What, what kind of gratitude does it give you personally? Because I know that you said you had, you know, a, a history of, of um, you know, people in the military and your family. When you see that you are helping people, and again, this is in the context of luxury watches, but you see that your efforts are actually helping individuals. What's the emotional feeling you have from that?
1: Uh, you know, it's and um, it makes me, in fact, emotional when you when you say that because it makes me it makes you waking up in the morning. You know, um, I, I follow some of the guys. Uh, I went to the beach twice uh, surfing with them. I mean, surfing is a big word because I was in the water, but anyway, more than on board uh, on the surfboard. But I met the guys, and when you see uh, uh, these people, you know uh, what they've been through. Um, some guys who. Try to commit suicide. Some other one um, is on a wheelchair, you know, and the guys kind of say thank you because they know that uh, what you've been doing with your brand and your company paid for the surfboard board and allow them to uh, to meet with their friends. Um, this is a gratitude. So we don't do that to have some uh, thank you or for whatever. We just do it because we believe that. And I say we because my team was super excited by super excited by the project. My US team, we just do it because we believe it's great to benefit from listener or awareness or club. You know that we have a club of collectors, and this club is very engaged to support more wave. So what we've been doing is is just giving a lot more meaning of uh, on our job.
0: You know. Well, let me tell you this because you're you're quite humble about it, and that probably says good things about you. But the reason I'm sort of stressing this is, you have a lot of examples of other companies. We're sure there's like a charitable component, but they're just sort of finding an existing charity and maybe saying like, "Oh, we'll give you some money," or "Here's a watch that you can sell on an auction and you know use that money for your charity." But it's sort of like more like a charitable contribution. What you did was really involve yourself in the charity and that's unique and you have to see a lot of hard things and a lot of people like the world of luxury because you're basically dealing with mostly privileged people but yet you have this compulsion to really get your hands dirty with non-privileged and i guess there's sort of a a, you know a social activism component of let's help give back you know where did that come from in your personality because it's it's i don't want to say it's uncommon but in the watch industry you just don't see a lot of it you know what i mean
1: um uh, you maybe. Uh, I, uh, I think we are kind of proud to to be friends with one of uh, the One More Wave guys. Uh, Alex, Rob, and Kyle were uh, giving their time to make it work. Uh, I think are, are friends now. And uh, where's coming from? I mean, my family has been in the army for, I don't know, two centuries, let's say. Oh, wow. Um, we, you know, when you see your dad coming back from an, uh, an operation in the Gulf War or something and he has to meet with the family of somebody who who died, um, it stays in the family, you know, you, you, you know, that there is uh, something special is happening, something difficult, uh, some tragedy is happening. And, uh, in fact, it's jobs like that. Um, tragedy is kind of every day, you know? So I just feel, I just feel that because Ulysse has been connected with the Navy, um, it was like a good thing to do, uh, very simply. And, um, and then these guys now benefit from the awareness we created. They, we are giving money. Uh, we have uh, even some retailers who got involved in uh, in the project and uh, also been giving money to One More Wave. And now some guys uh, who could be dead now are basically meeting on the Saturdays with some uh, other of their birds. Um, most of them are Navy SEALs or U.S. Marines. And, um, and these guys are alive and they have a family and they have, a, have some future, you know, and I'm happy to
0: contribute to that
1: um,
0: with this project. A brief moment to talk about footwear and our sponsor, eBay. Whether Rare, dead stock, or the latest release, find the exact shoe you've been looking for. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the spot to find that pair you must have. Shoes are also now part of eBay's latest buyer protection program. With eBay's Authenticity Guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent professional authenticators. A team of experienced sneaker authenticators verify the box, logo, stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an Authenticity Guarantee tag that includes a digital stamp of authenticity. And it also protects sellers with a verified return process. For sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees on sneakers $100 plus, making it free to sell or flip your collection. Go to ebay.com slash sneakers today. eBay, the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. That's wonderful. And the reason that I, I like to talk about this is because if you are on the consumer side and you're interested in watches, all day long you will see – brand is partnered with this charity, brand is interested in this cause. And a lot of those are great causes, but the thing is, a lot of those are just pure marketing. And what I like about what your initiatives have done is you've made it into a campaign. You've involved yourself. You know, you were down there in San Diego in the water with these guys. A lot of your colleagues wouldn't have done that. And that actually means that your job allows you to have a lot of fun. What is it? What is it about having fun, which is important to you in your in your professional career? I think it's the
1: key. Honestly, it's not only about the fun. It's also about what you uh, what you leave behind. I love the idea of uh, joining a project, joining a brand, uh, and there is what you find and what you leave when uh, you move to another project. And I really want to make sure that uh, after uh, my mission uh, with Snatter, uh the brand looks better. Uh, the brand is um, of course performing better but it's not only about that it's like the brand is really um, in terms of perceived value in terms of um, experience in terms of uh, customers uh, owners being proud of having a UN I want some of my customers to tell me that they want a UN to offer to uh, their daughter uh, or their son this is what you want to leave behind you know Um, if you go to uh, if you go to I would say when you will meet with God, nobody will ask your market shares or uh, <laughs> your, your bottom line of your profit and loss. This is not about that. You will go uh, to hell or paradise, depending on what you did. So not only about the fun, but I want to make sure that with the job I have now, like the job I had before, I leave uh, people around me like excited with what we do and happy of uh, of um,
0: being a customer, you know, part of our club. And, and let's be honest, from from a sort of competitive perspective with the products, it's really important because the brand, for example, makes a lot of diving watches at a particular price point. And the reality is there's a lot of other companies making other dive watches at a similar price point. And when the consumer goes and is trying to compare which one they want, usually it's these little added stories that help tip somebody over to one product versus another because like, there's a lot of really good dive watches out there. And so that's not actually what a lot of luxury brands are trying to focus on. It's not technical merit because sometimes their technical merit is the same as others. it's the stories and the participations and, and brand personality. Uh, would you agree with that? I agree with
1: you, and of course. and uh, it's, uh, for me, again, I come back to the story. It's about the connection with uh, someone and with If you want to buy a diving watch today, you know the markets there are, especially in the USA. Uh, some of the brands specialized in diving watches are just huge. And when you see how many watches we produce a year, at the end, if somebody doesn't buy our watch, somebody else will buy it. So somehow we are kind of cool uh, with ourselves because we are pretty much based on production anyway. What we want with my team uh, is some, if somebody buys a UN, it's a choice, it's a decision, it's a matter of awareness. Because then this customer, let's say John buys, um, for example, a chronograph, Hammerhead, limited edition, with a shark on it. We want John to tell his friends, look at this brand. It's amazing. You know what? See You know what? Concave uh, glass and bezel like this. You know what? It's limited edition. And these guys, you know, they do some expeditions with some uh, uh, shark uh, uh, science uh projects, um, we want our people to be ambassadors. And what's funny is that I would say difficult to be precise, but in, in a year in the USA, 15-20% of our sales have been made during events. The other 30% has been made from our customers buying a watch for somebody else, or their sister, etc. So, of my business is made by people we call the club. People who already know you and or met with uh, my team uh, uh, or myself. So that's amazing. Our, our customers are ambassadors, and they bring other customers. And our business is somehow based like that. We are like a, uh, a secret club. Of course, we want to make it better known. There are marketing techniques for that.
0: But overall, it's a very loyal uh, club. People treat oh, a good luxury brand like a friend, and it's almost like I like to hang out with my friend. I have a good time with my friend, so I want to introduce my other friends to my new friend. But it's, it's not really a product. It's more like an extension of their personality, and it's the personality of the brand that people like the most. You know, did you, Is this something you knew about watch brands before you, you started working there, or is this something that just sort of revealed itself slowly over time?
1: Um, I didn't know that before. Uh, I think when I was in Tago, it was very different. It was more like advertising and traffic to store. Um, now in Ulysse is very much what you said. And I give you a very precise example. Uh, I have a customer of mine. He became a friend of mine. He's a big buyer of complicated watches. He just bought a freewheel, for example, which is an amazing tourbillon. Uh, and we have a dinner at his place in three weeks. He will invite three of his best friends being Big buyers, car collectors, and he asked me to come and bring a few watches because he wants to help me um, introducing Richarda to uh, to these guys, you know. And this is uh, incredible. Um, exactly, exactly, what you said. Uh, we are friends, you know, and UN, I think uh, the way, the genuine way, I would say, or the organic way, um, we 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 work and we with our partners and our customers if you want, is, uh, make us being friends, you know, with people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about sharks. Um, you know, I think it's great that the brand has so much marine slash diving history and some of the products are based around that. And one of the most recent things that you've done is engage with a charity that's, uh, supposed to help, uh, the dwindling shark population. For those that don't know, I'm going to be nerdy again. Um, Sharks are in a lot of parts of the world endangered, but more important is that sharks are a direct sign of, of reef health. So when there's a, uh, an underwater coral reef somewhere that does not have sharks or as many sharks as it should, that's a sign of poor reef health. And so directly trying to figure out why are shark populations going away is actually directly related to um, marine reef health, which is, of course, very, very important. Um, would you say that I was right about that? Again, I'm not the expert.
1: Yes, I will also be nerdy. <laughs> ah, yeah. Please. Um, so Osearch, the nonprofit we are working with, um, they are, of course, uh, there will be influence on protecting the shark population. And as you said, the shark is the key. Uh, as the apex, it is the key of an ecosystem. Uh, but also, um uh, is working with scientists. So it's like a collaborative platform. It's a boat, in fact. Um, they work with fishermen. They never kill the animals. They capture the sharks, especially the great white shark. And in fact, they invite scientists from all over the world, mostly from North America, to work uh, on sharks. And uh, it's really, the intention is really to accelerate um, research on sharks to develop faster um, um, med- medicines. Uh, it goes really into medical research on cancer uh, and on different uh, type of bacteria, bacteriology. So it's more like a, a scientific project than a conservation
0: project, if you want. So you went out on a boat for like what was it like a few weeks, and you were you were hanging out with them. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Uh, once
1: again, we we don't want just to sponsor people and benefit from it. It's really for us uh, uh, some responsibility project, if you want. So yes, I was on the boat in August in Massachusetts. We've been uh, uh, catching great uh, white sharks, and uh, I was helping the scientists to collect some uh, uh, some samples uh, on the sharks, um, and these samples are going into different type of research um, for. It will benefit us at some point, you know.
0: So was that a, a serious uh, <laughs> luxury experience? Uh, I mean, it was not, lux- <laughs> not luxury
1: to sleep uh, uh, and be in these conditions on a big boat like that. So there were no luxury, but it was like a money can buy experience, if you ask me.
0: And uh, I, I guess the, the reason I'm joking about that is it sort of goes back to your personality and that a lot of the instances your colleagues would take advantage of a situation where it is a luxury experience, you know, going to a gala event, going to some special awards show, being a sponsor, being treated well. And, you know, being in the luxury industry gives people a lot of great access where you alternatively go and do something that is cool and interesting, but it's not like the type of thing where, you know, other you know, luxury brand presidents or even a lot of clients would necessarily want to go. So I just think it's kind of funny that that's how you you choose to sort of get your your, your hands dirty because it makes sense, but it's not like, hey, I'm going to have like my, my top three clients come with me. They'd be like, FX, thank you so much for the invitation, but this seems super uncomfortable.
1: <laughs> no, this, is, this wasn't very comfortable, but you know, uh, it's funny you say that. I mean, don't take me wrong. I love to be at fashion shows with uh, models and drinking some champagne. I can do that very well, too. <laughs> but uh, but I don't think that... Uh, I, I think the, uh, the universe of is what I want to do personally, is a bit uh, bigger than just uh, drinking champagne in a fancy hotel. I don't care too much about it. Uh, but the experience of being with disabled veterans uh, in Coronado, um, the experience of being with a scientist. Uh, literally, I was—I had my hands on a great white shark, you know, and uh, they gave me the honor to name a shark. So there is a shark now. Uh, she is a, a young female, 12 feet long. She is now cruising around Charleston. I follow her on my iPhone. I follow the Search app, so I know where the shark is. Her name is Andromache. Uh, Andromache is a Greek uh, figure. She's a symbol of uh, strength and courage. Um, and uh, it's a shark we have named. So it's really like uh, being uh, more than partners, you know. And uh, I spent my new year in uh, Chris Fisher's uh, house. Um, and Chris Fisher is the founder of uh, One More Wave. So the connections we have, are, uh, I feel like colleagues with them,
0: more than kind of partnership, if you know what I mean. No, it, it makes sense. It's a good way to make friends. Now, what kind of questions do they have for you? I mean, they live these interesting lives, but to you or your life must be extremely exotic to them. No one can imagine what that's like. What are they curious about? What kind of stories do you find yourself telling to them over and over again?
1: They kind of ask me, uh, uh, who are the customers? Because, you know, the research team, uh, they are scientists or fishermen. Uh, so their life is pretty good. You know, the water is... Uh, is stuff you know. Um, so th- their life is more is a life on the water. Uh, for the scientists, it's a life on the lab. And, uh, and then they see me and they ask, "Oh my God, a Gucci girl? It's like a uh, in your group. Uh, and your watches? Oh my God, this watch is like 100000 dollars. Who can buy that? So it's they're really, they're really asking about like I mean, I mean, my watches are beautiful. That's the point, but. People really buy it. <laughs> yes, what,
0: what do you say? How do you how do you sort of help explain who the customer is? Oh, it's a good question. My God, you know, I
1: think that the customer. I mean, a, a UN customer is of course a customer who kind of for luxury. But having said that, I think that uh, buying a luxury watch uh, is not for uh, the friend hearted. You know, you must be very sure of yourself. You must be sure of how well you do right now and how well you do in the future because it's expensive and it has to be maintained in a way. So what well, it's is, a luxury uh, item. It's <laughs> a so luxury, luxury item. And it's, it's not even a useful luxury item. It's just a superlative luxury item. So when they ask me, like, who are these people, etc., I just say, you know, my customers, um, they do very good. They are very self-confident. But on top of that, they make a decision. Because watches, it's highly competitive. Some brands have incredible marketing money, and we are all brainwashed by all this marketing. But if you find a U.S. partner, it's a a connection with a brand or it's a connection with a product. So bottom line, Ariel, my customers are self-confident and they make their own decision.
0: I I really want to stress on on that topic a little bit more because... In this space, insecurity helps sell a lot of watches for certain brands. And when you have a brand that sells to people that, that are secure, it's very different. And, and we know that a lot of luxury brands, they, they try to find the insecurity in the customer. And I think a lot of consumers don't really realize that very wealthy people, in a lot of ways, have more consumer insecurity than people that, that are not wealthy. And so when someone buys a Rolex, which is a perfectly good watch, and and Rolexes are fantastic, but a Rolex is for people that that are less secure personally because the brand is is very well-known. It has good resale. It's sort of a classic design. No one's going to be like, why did you buy a Rolex? It's it's sort of like an expected luxury thing. But then when you go sort of outside of the super mainstream luxury brands like Rolex, and frankly, there aren't that many others – to, to buy that thing, not only are you spending a handsome amount of money, but you're getting a design that that only you can validate. And it takes a strong, self-assured personality who has a history of making successful decisions to do that. And again, that, that simply doesn't represent every kind of watch brand. There, there's a lot of brands out there that require a confident personality, but... Um, that's really what it seems like your job is. It's finding those people with that confidence and saying, we have a product that can exemplify or can at least um, accent your confidence. Would you agree? I
1: totally agree. I agree again. And, um, you know, we I could be wrong in some cases, but usually Listerna is not the first watch. Usually the people we meet uh, or, or club members, if you want, uh, they have already a few watches, of course. And I, I, I kind of... Believe in what you say. Uh, and I, I do the same for some other product categories. You buy things that you know, that everybody knows, you want to prove to the others uh, that you achieve something, and certain brands are designed for that. Uh, but when you have uh, done this type of purchase, and really when you dig into the category, oh, then you realize that the freak is an amazing revolution for watchmaking. Or you realize that, I don't know, the One More Wave watch we've been discussing uh, is supporting a cause. That you want to support as well, and then you make a different decision when you buy uh, a U.N. watch. I just give an example. I think it's a, I think it's a good one. We had a small event uh, some time ago, and um, we had uh, the One More Wave watch. Uh, so, uh, the price, I think, is thousand500 500, 500, Sorry, uh, for this uh, beautiful piece, and. Um, of course, we are the idea is to give money to one more wave. So the guy paid thirty eight thousand dollars for the watch, making sure that we will
0: wire the money to um, one more wave, which we did, of course. So so he over he overpaid intending for the extra money to go to the charity. meaning, he wanted the watch, but he wanted to give the charity even more.
1: Oh, exactly. And uh, in in the people who bought the one more wave, we know because every time you buy your standard watch, you register your watch. And uh, we love to know who the customer is, you know, we have interactions with our, with our customers. And I realized in the purchase, that some of the purchase are famous Navy SEALs that heard about the watch. I think the SEALs between each other discussed about the watch and some famous people, including, um, I don't say the name of uh, our customers, but one of the customers is a famous um, Navy SEAL who was leading the Special Forces in the United States, got retired. So... For example, I saw that this gentleman bought uh, bought a watch, uh, this One More Wave, but we also see that in the donation made to One More Wave, some names are my customers, and I love that. I feel like not only we are doing our job with my team, we are promoting beautiful watches and people buy them, but on top of that, we are putting uh, veterans on the surfboard. Once again, it makes you waking up in the morning, you know?
0: So how do you sort of expand your efforts? Because one of the things I think is important for people to realize is that all of the things you're talking about come from you, which is one person. But to scale this, right, to have more of these events, to do essentially the same type of thing around the world, requires sort of a scale. And and, that, and that's tough to do. And I guess the question is, like, are you a shiny blip in an otherwise you know, maybe too traditional industry? Or do you think that there's sort of like younger managers out there that can can look at what you do and learn from it? Because one of the things that I struggle with is trying to explain to our colleagues in Europe, what makes the United States market different And the United States for a lot of brands is the biggest market, but they don't always seem to quite get it maybe they don't want to or they can't. But like, how can you teach others what you know in terms of how to run a luxury watch brand in the United States?
1: You know, French are naturally arrogant, so I don't want to give an arrogant answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. But um, for first thing, I agree with you. I think you said that without saying it. But I, I also realize that now that I live in the U.S., um, how wrong is the perception of the U.S.A. or the U.S. market in Europe? Everybody believes in Europe that they know the U.S.A. because they've been traveling, because they've been doing some road trip in Yellowstone, you know, uh, but in fact, no, they don't really understand the market. It's very difficult when you are in the US leading a European brand to explain to your colleagues that, uh, yes, you believe it's like that, but in fact, it's not. Um, So this is the first thing. And you know, um, I don't believe I can teach a lot to people, but uh, I try to bring in the job uh, for UN, uh, for this industry, uh, some disruption or some some, uh, some cool ideas and stuff that uh, I believe are right, you know. Um, so that's why we, we do things sometimes different. Uh, some journalists, some partners will tell us that we, what we do is, is just different. And I think we, is, we want to do it at UN. I think my colleagues, myself are people who want to do different things. Also, I come from other industries. I mean, working in different countries, different industries. So I don't fear. Uh, testing uh, things and also talking about uh, the younger generation and the soul first but <laughs> I uh, I'm invited regularly as a speaker um, I'm uh, I've been last year on Zoom or physically I've been speaking with Harvard with Hult Business School with BU Boston University and I'm regularly on panels or uh, doing a business case or um, helping like friends or startups uh, in their projects. so
0: I, I love to be very multi disciplinary, if you want. so I, w- I want to sort of talk about you know some of these things that I think are really important, especially for people that are in the watch industry and listening to this. And the context essentially is this. the watch industry is designed to keep conservative traditional concepts alive. You know that you are making a mechanical watch in a time where, you know, your your rank and file consumer doesn't need a mechanical watch. It's a luxury item. You know, people wear watches, but they're powered by, you know, modern electronic mechanisms. This this culture is of one that that is stuck in the past almost as a rule. And to say to them, you need to do that, but also be open-minded to new things is a very real contradiction. And I see I see the struggle with it. And I really believe that r- certain rules need to be made. You actually have to say, this type of thing, respect and don't change. But this type of thing over here, don't respect and do change. Like, I, Do you agree that almost like a guide needs to be written? Because just saying respect some old things, but also bring in some new things, that seems to be too hard for a lot of people.
1: I think it's like hard. You can do whatever you want, finally. Uh, and in fact, what you see as a struggle, Ariel, I see it as beauty uh, and uh, a source of creativity, if you want. Because yes, we want to keep some uh, uh, some skills alive. We were speaking about enamel before, uh, but also because it's beautiful. And there is a way to make enamel more contemporary, more disruptive, you know? So I think it's uh, uh, if we want to continue being relevant as an industry, uh, we have to continue explaining that we have an heritage, we have skills, tradition, which makes, in fact, the beauty of the watch. But still, we need people, we need brands, we need designers, watchmakers breaking the same rules in order to open some new ways and um, that's uh, that's fascinating with the company if you if you remember i mean imagine these guys in the dark in the jura mountains uh, making uh, clockwork uh, in the 19th century Uh, and now you have a watch on your wrist uh, using uh, silicone Uh, you have um, i mean that's fascinating so I think it's pretty timeless, and that's why we love uh, wearing watches or we love working in this industry.
0: What are some of the other causes that are important to you that might might find their way onto your radar the next couple of years? We talked about the US Navy, we talked about military veterans, we talked about, you know, uh, ocean life. What else are you passionate about that might find its way into a Ulysses and collaboration?
1: Oof, it's a good question. Um it's really, after, honestly, I feel like I've done these three projects uh, I really wanted to do with the brand. Uh, and it was the first cycle, you know. So, yes, you're right. We have to, to bring a new cycle. Um, I love creativity in watches. I love the fact also that so many people, uh, so many, uh, uh, yeah, group of people ignore completely uh, the watch industry. So now, for example, I'm, uh, I have a discussion with I uh, I won't give you right now all the information, but I'm, I'm speaking with a famous university, uh, famous for design, famous for fashion. And we discuss with them, we discuss with the class, and I would love to have them um, involved uh, in early uh, stardom in terms of creativity, because I believe that we are not only a watch brand, we are a little bit more than that. We are more like a mindset, if you want.
0: Are people in Switzerland potentially threatened that someone else might design, or is that something they're totally okay with?
1: It's not really the idea of designing a watch. Uh, it's more about uh, um, asking so, a younger generation uh, to dissect a Listana And if a was a person, if a was a style, if a was something else than a watch, what would it be? How inclusive and how diverse uh, would be this Listana? Uh, What would be the use of Listana? What would be the color code of Listana? It's more going beyond the watch and uh, having a younger people, a younger audience who doesn't know Listana to dig into our values. This is more, uh, this is what I want to do, in fact, uh, this year.
0: Let me let me ask you about this. And this is where we'll where we'll end the show talking about this topic of, of young people, because I think that it's it's really crucial to discuss it. Discuss it. You as a manager are probably constantly being pushed. Hey, FX, we need to get more young buyers. We need to have um content which is appealing to young people. It's always like young people, next generation, young people, next generation. But we all know that luxury watches only become affordable for the most part to people when they earn enough, which is not when they're super young, but, you know, mid middle of their of their life or maybe later in life. So what is what is, in your opinion, the correct strategy when it comes to appealing to younger demographic, but also being realistic that you're not going to have a bunch of 20 year olds spending $10,000 on a watch?
1: It's an interesting question. And I think it's like one of the big questions everybody asks, how do you target the young people? How do you target the Z-Gen, et cetera, et cetera? I don't pretend to have the answer, but what I understand and what I believe is, and because I meet with these kids uh, somehow uh, when I give classes and business case, work with business case with them is, uh, they understand very well. Maybe the young now understand better than us. They understand very well that marketing, is driving behavior. And somehow they are allergic to BS, you know? That's why they are very careful with a lot of uh, um, societal topics or politics because they understand that it's like we are all like influence. And um, I believe that for us, of course, we can put watches on 20 influencers. We can do all this strategy design for the young people. But I believe that these people are looking for Genuine brands. And if not now, because we are consistent, creative, inclusive, and genuine, we will be on the radar when they want to buy fifteen a twenty thousand dollars watch. We will be there,
0: okay. So the idea is to connect with them now, but know that they're not going to buy until later and somehow maintain this relationship so that, when they do, maybe have the money to buy a luxury watch, they're like, "Oh, I remembered that I had a good connection with Ulysses Nardon. Let me sort of see what they what they have for sale today." Is that essentially the goal?
1: I think it is. We we don't produce a lot, as you know, Ariel. we are very very secret brand. So, uh, if some young guys don't buy today and buy in two years, it's good for us. But we don't want to go fast and. Trying to put watches on all these influencers and all these people all around just to say you must buy UN to be cool. Some of the brands will do that. But if you dig, I will say to the young guys and the young lady if you dig into Listana, if you research about us, if you ask friends having Listana, if you ask uh, the retailers about the brands they like, you may discuss Listana. When you're ready, when you're self confident, when your future is, uh, is great, come to us. We will be there. We won't move, you know. We will just continue to disrupt a little bit, but we will be there. I believe that.
0: That is a, that is a wonderful end of the conversation. Uh, when you need them, Ulysses Nardin will be there for you. I want everyone to, to say thank you to uh, FX from Ulysses Nardin for joining us. He is the president of Americas. Uh, Francois Xavier, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Ariel, for inviting me. Uh, thank you for the audience. If you've been listening to this uh, podcast, and Ariel, it's always a pleasure uh, to speak with you. See
0: you soon. See everyone next time on the Superlative Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog dot com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture visit a blog to watch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?